0: Episode 6, Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick Warlaub a few days afterwards as i was forming a line with a crowd of courtiers to enjoy the ever new pleasure of seeing the king go to mass a pleasure to which must be added the advantage of looking at the naked and entirely exposed arms and bosoms of madame de france his daughters i suddenly perceived the cavamaria whom i had left in cesena under the name of madame querini if i was astonished to see her she was as much so in meeting me in such a place the marquis of saint-simon premier gentilhomme of the prince de conde escorted her madame carini in fontainebleau you here it reminds me of queen elizabeth saying paupet Rubique an excellent comparison madame i am only joking my dear friend i am here to see the king who does not know me but to-morrow the ambassador will present me to his majesty she placed herself in the line within a yard or two from me beside the door by which the king was to come his majesty entered the gallery with monsieur de richelieu and looked at the so-called madame carini, but she very likely did not take his fancy for continuing to walk on he addressed to the marshal these remarkable words which juliet must have overheard we have handsomer women here in the afternoon i called upon the venetian ambassador i found him in numerous company with madame carini sitting on his right she addressed me in the most flattering and friendly manner it was extraordinary conduct on the part of a giddy woman who had no cause to like me for she was aware that i knew her thoroughly And that I had mastered her vanity. But as I understood her manoeuvring, I made up my mind not to disoblige her, and even to render her all the good offices I could. It was a noble revenge. As she was speaking of Monsieur Cherini, the ambassador congratulated her upon her marriage with him, saying that he was glad Monsieur Cerini had rendered justice to her merit, and adding, I was not aware of your marriage. Yet it took place more than two years since, said Juliette i know it for a fact i said in my turn for two years ago the lady was introduced as madame carini and with the title of excellency by general spada to all the nobility in cesena where i was at that time i have no doubt of it answered the ambassador fixing his eyes upon me for carini has himself written to me on this subject a few minutes afterwards as i was preparing to take my leave the ambassador under pretense of some letters the contents of which he wished to communicate to me "'Invited me to come to his private room, "'and he asked me what the people generally thought of the marriage in Venice. "'Nobody knows it, and it is even rumoured that the heir of the house of Carini "'is on the point of marrying a daughter of the Grimani family. "'But I shall certainly send news to Venice.' "'What news?' "'That Juliet is truly Madame Carini, "'since Your Excellency will present her as such to Louis Fifteenth. "'Who told you so?' "'She did. Perhaps she has altered her mind.' i repeated to the ambassador the words which the king had said to monsieur de richelieu after looking at juliette then i can guess remarked the ambassador why Juliet does not wish to be presented to the king i was informed some time afterwards that monsieur de saint-quentin the king's confidential minister had called after mass on the handsome venetian and had told her that the king of france had most certainly very bad taste because he had not thought her beauty superior to that of several ladies of his court Juliette left Fontainebleau the next morning. In the first part of my memoirs I have spoken of Juliette's beauty. She had a wonderful charm in her countenance, but she had already used her advantages too long, and her beauty was beginning to fade when she arrived in Fontainebleau. I met her again in Paris at the Ambassadors, and she told me with a laugh that she had only been in jest when she called herself Madame Carini, and that I should oblige her if, for the future, I would call her by her real name of Countess Priati. She invited me to visit her at the Hotel de Luxembourg, where she was staying. I often called on her, for her intrigues amused me. But I was wise enough not to meddle with them. She remained in Paris four months, and contrived to infatuate Monsieur Ranchy, secretary of the Venetian embassy, an amiable and learned man. He was so deeply in love that he had made up his mind to marry her, but through a caprice which she, perhaps, regretted afterwards she ill-treated him and the fool died of grief count de caen ambassador of marie theresa had some inclination for her as well as the count of zinzendorf the person who arranged these transient and short-lived intrigues was a certain Guasco, an abbe not over-favored with the gifts of plutus he was particularly ugly and had to purchase small favors with great services but the man whom she really wished to marry was count saint-simon he would have married her if she had not given him false addresses to make enquiries respecting her birth. The Priati family of Verona denied all knowledge of her as a matter of course, and Monsieur de Saint-Simon, who, in spite of all his love, had not entirely lost his senses, had the courage to abandon her. Altogether, Paris did not prove an El Dorado for my handsome countrywoman, for she was obliged to pledge her diamonds and to leave them behind her. After her return to Venice, she married the son of Vuccelli, who 16 years before had taken her out of her poverty. She died 10 years ago. I was still taking my French lessons with my good old Crebillon, yet my style, which was full of Italianisms, often expressed the very reverse of what I meant to say. But generally my quid pro quos only resulted in curious jokes which made my fortune, and the best of it is that my gibberish did me no harm on the score of wit. On the contrary it produced me fine acquaintances several ladies of the best society begged me to teach them italian saying that it would afford them the opportunity of teaching me french in such an exchange i always won more than they did madame Priodeau, who was one of my pupils received me one morning she was still in bed and told me that she did not feel disposed to have a lesson because she had taken medicine the previous night foolishly translating an italian idiom i asked her with an air of deep interest, whether she had, well, de Sir, what a question! You are unbearable. I repeated my question. She broke out angrily again. Never utter that dreadful word. You are wrong in getting angry. It is the proper word. A very dirty word, sir, but enough about it. Will you have some breakfast? No, I, th- I thank you. I have taken a café and two Savoyards. Dear me, what a ferocious breakfast. Pray, explain yourself. I say that I have drunk a café and eaten two Savoyards, soaked in it, and that is what I do every morning. You are stupid, my good friend. A café is an establishment in which coffee is sold, and you ought to say that you have drunk Ustaf de Café. Good indeed. Do you drink the cup? In Italy we say cafs, and we are not foolish enough to suppose that it means the coffee house. He will have the best of it. And two Savoyards? How did you swallow them? Soaked in my coffee, for they were not larger than these on your table. And you call these Savoyards? Say, biscuits. In Italy we call them Savoyards, because they were first invented in Savoy. And it's not my fault if you imagined that i had swallowed two of the porters to be found at the corner of the streets. Big fellows whom you call in Paris Savoyards. Although very often they've never been in Savoy her husband came in at the moment and she lost no time in relating the whole of our conversation he laughed heartily but he said i was right her niece arrived a few minutes after she was a young girl about fourteen years of age reserved modest very intelligent i had given her five or six lessons in italian and as she was very fond of that language and studied diligently she was beginning to speak wishing to pay me her compliments in italian she said to me signore sono incantata di dare in salute." i thank you mademoiselle but to translate i am enchanted you must say au passer and for to see you you must say dividervi monsieur and madame priodot were dying with laughter the young lady was confused and i in despair at having uttered such a gross absurdity but it could not be helped i took a book sulkily in the hope of putting a stop to their mirth but it was of no use it lasted a week That uncouth blunder soon got known throughout Paris and gave me a sort of reputation which I lost little by little, but only when I understood the double meanings of words better. Crébillon was much amused with my blunder, and he told me that I ought to have said after instead of behind. Ah, why have not all languages the same genius? But if the French laughed at my mistakes in speaking their language, I took my revenge amply by turning some of their idioms into ridicule. "'Sir,' I once said to a gentleman, how is your wife you do her great honor sir pray tell me sir what honor has to do with her health I meet in the Bois de Boulogne a young man riding a horse which he cannot master and at last he is thrown I stop the horse run to the assistance of the young man and help him up did you hurt yourself sir oh many thanks sir au contraire why au contraire the deuce it has done you good then begin again sir and a thousand similar expressions entirely the reverse of good sense but it is the genius of the language i was one day paying my first visit to the wife of president de when her nephew a brilliant butterfly came in and she introduced me to him mentioning my name and my country indeed sir you are italian said the young man upon my word you present yourself so gracefully that i would have betted you were french sir when i saw you i was near making the same mistake i would have betted you were italian Another time I was dining at Lady Lambert's, in numerous and brilliant company. Someone remarked on my finger a Cornelian ring, on which was engraved very beautifully the head of Louis the Fifteenth. My ring went round the table, and everybody thought the likeness was striking. A young Marquise, who had the reputation of being a great wit, said to me in the most serious tone, It is truly an antique? The stone, madame, undoubtedly. Everyone laughed except the thoughtless young beauty who did not take any notice of it toward the end of the dinner someone spoke of the rhinoceros which was then shewn for twenty-four sous at the st germain fair let us go and see it was the cry we got into the carriages and reached the fair we took several turns before we could find the place i was the only gentleman and was taking care of two ladies in the midst of the crowd and the witty marquise was walking in front of us at the end of the alley where we had been told we would find the animal there was a man placed to receive the money of the visitors it is true that the man dressed in the african fashion was very dark and enormously stout yet he had a human and very masculine form and the beautiful marquise had no business to make a mistake nevertheless the thoughtless young creature went up straight to him and said are you the rhinoceros sir go in madame go in we were dying with laughter And the marquise, when she had seen the animal, thought herself bound to apologize to the master, assuring him that she had never seen a rhinoceros in her life, and therefore he could not feel offended if she had made the mistake. One evening I was in the foyer of the Italian Comedy, where between the acts the highest noblemen were in the habit of coming in order to converse and joke with the actresses who used to sit there waiting for their turn to appear on the stage. And I was seated near Camille, Coraline's sister, whom I amused by making love to her. A young counsellor, who objected to my occupying Camille's attention, becoming a very conceited fellow, attacked me upon some remark I made respecting an Italian play, and took the liberty of shewing his bad temper by criticising my native country. I was answering him in an indirect way, looking all the time at Camille, who was laughing. Everybody had congregated around us, and was attentive to the discussion, which, being carried on as an assault of wit, had nothing to make it unpleasant.' but it seemed to take a serious turn when the young fop turning the conversation on the police of the city said that for some time it had been dangerous to walk alone at night through the streets of paris during the last month he added the place de grève has seen the hanging of seven men among whom were five italians an extraordinary circumstance nothing extraordinary in that i answered honest men generally contrive to be hung far away from their native country "'And as a proof of it, sixty Frenchmen have been hung in the course of the last year between Naples, Rome, and Venice. Five times twelve are sixty, so you see that it's only a fair exchange.' "'The laughter was all on my side, and the fine counsellor went away rather crestfallen. One of the gentlemen present at the discussion, finding my answer to his taste, came up to Camille and asked her in a whisper who I was. We got acquainted at once.' it was monsieur de marini whom i was delighted to know for the sake of my brother whose arrival in paris i was expecting every day monsieur de marini was superintendent of the royal buildings and the academy of painting was under his jurisdiction i mentioned my brother to him and he graciously promised to protect him another young nobleman who conversed with me invited me to visit him it was the duc de Montalona. i told them that i had seen him then only a child eight years before in naples and that i was under great obligations to his uncle don lelio the young duke was delighted and we became intimate friends my brother arrived in paris in the spring of seventeen fifty one and he lodged with me at madame quinson's he began at once to work with success for private individuals but his main idea being to compose a picture to be submitted to the judgment of the academy i introduced him to Monsieur de marini who received him with great distinction and encouraged him by assuring him of his protection he immediately set to work with great diligence. Monsieur de Morosini had been recalled, and Monsieur de Monsenigo had succeeded him as ambassador of the Republic. Monsieur de Bragadine had recommended me to him, and he tendered a friendly welcome both to me and to my brother, in whose favor he felt interested as a Venetian and as a young artist seeking to build up a position by his talent. Monsieur de Mocenigo was of a very pleasant nature. He liked gambling, although he was always unlucky at cards he loved women and he was not more fortunate with them because he did not know how to manage them two years after his arrival in paris he fell in love with madame de calandre and finding it impossible to win her affections he killed himself madame la dauphine was delivered of a prince the duke of burgundy and the rejoicings indulged in at the birth of that child seem to me incredible now when i see what the same nation is doing against the king the people want to be free it is a noble ambition for mankind are not made to be the slaves of one man but with a nation populous great witty and giddy what will be the end of that revolution time alone can tell us the duke de matelona procured me the acquaintance of the two princes don marc antoine and don jean baptiste borghese from rome who were enjoying themselves in paris yet living without display i had occasion to remark that when those roman princes were presented at the court of france they were only styled marquis It was the same with the Russian princes, to whom the title of prince was refused when they wanted to be presented. They were called knees, but they did not mind it, because that word meant prince. The court of France has always been foolishly particular on the question of titles, and it is even now sparing the title of monsieur, although it is common enough everywhere every man who is not titled was called sieur. I have remarked that the king never addressed his bishops otherwise than as abbés although they were generally very proud of their titles. The king likewise affected to know a nobleman only when his name was inscribed amongst those who served him. Yet the haughtiness of Louis the fifteenth had been inoculated in him by education. It was not in his nature. When an ambassador presented someone to him, the person thus presented withdrew with all the certainty of having been seen by the king, but that was all. Nevertheless, Louis the fifteenth was very polite, particularly with ladies, even with his mistresses when in public. Whoever failed in respect towards them in the slightest manner was sure of disgrace, and no king ever possessed to a greater extent the grand royal virtue which is called dissimulation. He kept a secret faithfully, and he was delighted when he knew that no one but himself possessed it. The Chevalier Dion is proof of this, for the king alone knew and had always known that the chevalier was a woman, and all the long discussions which the false chevalier had with the office for foreign affairs was a comedy which the king allowed to go on only because it amused him. Louis the Fifteenth was great in all things, and he would have had no faults if flattery had not forced them upon him. But how could he possibly have supposed himself faulty in anything, when everyone around him repeated constantly that he was the best of kings? a king in the opinion of which he was imbued respecting his own person was a being of nature by far too superior to ordinary men for him not to have had the right to consider himself akin to a god sad destiny of kings Vile flatterers are constantly doing everything necessary to reduce them below the condition of man the princess of ardor was delivered about that time a young prince her husband the neapolitan ambassador entreated louis the fifteenth to be a godfather to the child the king consented and presented his godson with a regiment but the mother who did not like the military career for her son refused it the marshal de richelieu told me that he had never known the king laugh so heartily as when he heard of that singular refusal at the duchesse de fulvis i made the acquaintance of mademoiselle Goscin, who was called lelotte She was the mistress of Lord Albemarle, the English ambassador, a witty and very generous nobleman. One evening he complained of his mistress praising the beauty of the stars which were shining brightly over her head, saying that she ought to know he could not give them to her. If Lord Albemarle had been ambassador to the court of France at the time of the rupture between France and England, he would have arranged all difficulties amicably, and the unfortunate war by which France lost Canada would have not taken place. There is no doubt that the harmony between two nations depends very often upon their respective ambassadors, when there is any danger of a rupture. As to the noble lord's mistress, there was but one opinion respecting her. She was fit in every way to become his wife, and the highest families of France did not think that she needed the title of Lady Albemarle to be received with distinction. No lady considered it debasing to sit near her, although she was well known as the mistress of the English lord. She had passed from her mother's arms to those of Lord Albemarle at the age of thirteen, and her conduct was always of the highest respectability. She bore children, whom the ambassador acknowledged legally, and she died Countess d'Auroville. I shall have to mention her again in my memoirs. I had likewise occasion to become acquainted with the Venetian embassy with a lady from Venice. The widow of an English baronet named Wynne, She was then coming from London with her children, where she had been compelled to go in order to ensure them the inheritance of their late father, which they would have lost if they had not declared themselves members of the Church of England. She was on her way back to Venice, much pleased with her journey. She was accompanied by her eldest daughter, a young girl of twelve years, who, notwithstanding her youth, carried on her beautiful face all the signs of perfection. She is now living in Venice, the widow of Count de Rosenberg, who died in Venice ambassador of the Empress Queen Maria Theresa, She is surrounded by the brilliant halo of her excellent conduct and all her social virtues. No one can accuse her of any fault except that of being poor, but she feels it only because it does not allow her to be as charitable as she might wish. The reader will see in the next chapter how I managed to embroil myself with the French police. End of chapter Seven.